before Steve comes up. Ruth is after Judges, uh, before Samuel and Kings. In this one, it's about 319, it might be. Have you noticed they're always quite similar, church numberings, Bible numberings? All right. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, and one named Orpah, and the other named Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died, and Naomi was left with her two, without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With their two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you so that, as you have shown your dead and to me, may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest rest in the home of another husband then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her we will go back with you to your people but Naomi said return home my daughters why should you come with me am I going to have other sons and who would become your husbands return home my daughters I'm too old to have another husband even if I thought that there was still hope for me even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is much more, better for, much more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people. And her gods, go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. 
The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. <laughs> it's not that hard to read. Yeah, well, well done, well done, well done. Uh, good, thank you very much, uh, Brendan, for that. Uh, uh, many apologies for not being with you last night. Very glad to be here um, this morning. This is a funny thing we're doing, isn't it? Four talks on fear. Funny idea. Um, even funnier, linked into the four chapters of Ruth. Um, um, understand that we're, when th- this isn't four talks on Ruth. Uh, we're going to work our way through the four chapters uh, uh, today and tomorrow. But um, it's four talks on fear, which will intermittently be informed um, by stuff. From, uh, from Ruth. Um, why fear? Um, why make this a topic to think about? Well, um, come at it this way. Um, it's, um, it's said that do not fear is the commonest command in the whole of the Bible. Now, I've not actually counted every command in the Bible to check that, but I think it's probably true uh, that do not fear um, is the commonest command that God makes upon us uh, from, uh, from Scripture. And my question uh, at the very outset is why? Why would it be that do not fear uh, would be the commonest command uh, that God would give us? Why not do not be rude uh, or do not be angry? Um, uh, why not do not be lazy? Um, God's against all of those. Uh, why would it be that do not fear stands out first and foremost as the commonest command. Um, well, uh, let me get you to think about that. Um, why do you think that might be the case? Uh, we're going to do little bits of interaction as we go through, uh, so prepare yourselves. So just uh, t- turn to somebody next to you, uh, two or three of you together. Um, why do you think that this might be so? Take a few minutes. Any offers? Um, anyone want to shout out an idea? 
Um, any thoughts about why that might be? Um, any suggestions? Because an angel, yeah, yeah, no, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Angels are forever saying, do not be afraid. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so there's something, about, there's something about sort of the supernatural and the otherworldly that seems to be, that seems to create fear, which is interesting. Yeah. Olaf? Thank you, Olaf. Yeah, so, so there, there is some sort, of a, some sort of a combination, some sort of connection uh, between faith and fear, and that comes up a number of times um, in the Bible. Any other, any other thoughts? Yeah, John? Yeah. So a, conne a connection between fear and sin um, highlighted right back at the very beginning in, in Genesis um, and whether there is something about um, being in a place that we shouldn't be uh, that causes us to be um, afraid. Good answers. Um, uh, that's, a, that's a very good, uh, a, a very good starting point for us. Um, uh, let, let, let's kind of begin here then um, by acknowledging that um, th there is, if you like, a bit of a fear spectrum. Um, you, you could kind of think that um, from sort of utter terror over one side to sort of pure shalom over on the uh, tother, um, and in between um, a whole string of, of, of different ways that we could describe uh, our levels of, of fear or peacefulness or chilledness. Um, and I guess all of us would recognize that um, you know, we, we can at times uh, be over on the right-hand side of that spectrum. Some of us may know that we tend to veer very much to the right-hand side, um, and others less so. Um, some of us very conscious of fear being prominent part of our lives, um, and others of us might need to search for it a little bit harder. Let me give you some examples um, as we begin. Uh, think of Alex. Uh, who seems almost overwhelmed uh, by fear and dread. Alex is terrified of social settings. Being asked a direct question in a small group is just overwhelming for her. Uh, you have the impression that if she could actually be invisible um, in any social gatherings, that's what she would prefer. The thought of being put on the spot is a constant terror for Alex. When she arrives at church, always a little bit late, uh, she scans the room trying to find somewhere to sit which will not cause her to be close to anybody else, where she can sit alone, where no one will interact with her. Uh, or how about Bill, who has a rather different pattern of fear, where the threat for Bill is not social demands. No, what Bill is frightened of uh, is illness. Uh, unlike Alex, where everyone can see that she is shy, 
Ben's, uh, Bill's fearfulness is completely hidden. No one knows that Bill washes his hands 30 times a day. No one knows how terrified he is uh, of being in the GP surgery, sitting in the waiting room, surrounded by all those sick people, breathing out their germs. There are a lot more people with obsessive-compulsive disorders uh, in our churches than we might think. Uh, and then there's Caroline. Now, Caroline doesn't seem to fit into the anxious category at all. Because ask anyone, and they'll tell you that uh, Caroline is the life and soul of the party, full of energy, uh, full of dynamism, a go-getter, successful, a leader out in front, getting stuff done. Nothing phases Caroline. But scratch under the surface a little, and something you hadn't anticipated begins to emerge. Because as long as Caroline can remember, she has been terrified of failure. Was it expectations put upon her at school? Was it super demanding parents? Or is it just something about the way that Caroline was put together? Whatever it is, she lives in constant terror of falling short, which means she is constantly striving. Performance at school, performance at college, performance at work. Caroline has been a blur of activity her entire life constantly driven by an underlying terror that she won't make the grade. Now, right alongside Song Caroline um, in her small group is Drew. And as it happens, Drew is also terrified of failure. Only the way that that gets expressed in Drew's experience is very different to Caroline. Uh, unlike Caroline, Drew's not out there at it in the world. Now, he's on the back foot Drew is always underachieving. Not because he's not gifted, but because he too is terrified of failure. Terrified that things might go wrong. Terrified, therefore, to take any risks at all. So given the choice, uh, Drew's mantra is, best not. Don't risk it. Don't try it. Because if you don't try anything, then you can't fail. It's why Drew's not progressed at work. It's why he's not um, uh, reluctant to take. It's why he's reluctant to take on any ministry uh, in a church context. It's why actually Drew's never asked anyone out, because if you don't ask, you can't be rejected, and that's what he's terrified of. Uh, or how about Erica? Erica's not anxious either. Um, Erica's someone you can absolutely count on. To to do whatever you ask her to do, really. She's at the very center of uh, church life, the linchpin of the uh, children's group where she serves. Utterly reliable anything. You want something done? Ask Erica. She'll never let you down. Needs, need a meal taken around to somebody in need? She'll pitch up and do it. Actually, Erica would probably start organizing a rota for three weeks for everyone to do it. Erica's the first to notice the new person. First to provide help to the bereaved. First to spot a need and be there and do it. So is Erica afraid? Yeah, Erica's afraid. She's so afraid that she can't ever say no. She's driven by this need to keep other people happy. The fear that controls Erica is the fear of upsetting people, of doing something that people don't like. 
And we're not done yet. How about Fred? Everyone knows Fred because he's Mr. Angry. Simmering irritation and anger is what you get with Fred. Complaints, objections, disapproval are the daily currency of Fred's life. He's a one-man early warning system for error, scanning the church for anything less than perfect so he can tell the staff team what's gone wrong. It's there, not just at church, though. It's there in his family, too. So his children have learnt to expect Fred's angry outbursts. He once heard a parenting seminar where he was told that the good way of approaching parenting is to catch a child doing something good and praise them for it. He didn't get that at all. Couldn't see the point of that. Much better, catch them doing something wrong, correct them. That's the way to go. Fred believes that. Uh, Fred believes that children need to be picked up and corrected at every moment. Now, hang on, we were thinking about fear. Fred's just angry, isn't he? Only fear and anger are very close allies. In one person, fear produces a flight response. But in other people, fear causes them to fight, to attack. And Fred fights. Because what Fred fears most is things being out of control. He wants order. He wants tidiness. Uh, truth be told, he wants things done his way. And when it isn't, it bothers him. Because he's afraid where it might lead. Afraid where the church might end up if he doesn't pick up their errors. Afraid what might happen to his children if he doesn't correct them uh, every time he sees them out of order. So Fred's very much afraid. So afraid that he attacks error wherever he sees it. So there they are. Alex, Bill, Caroline, Drew, Erica, Fred. I could go on. My question is, have you seen yourself yet? Of course, I recognize that my six little cameos are loud versions. Um, I've deliberately made them sort of exaggerated versions uh, in order that they're easy to spot. You may be a much milder version of one of these, or perhaps a combination of two or three, and you can see a little bit of each of them in you. But I'm, I'm hoping that something resonates, that something out of those uh, six uh, uh, little life examples uh, begins to give you a clue of the way in which fear operates uh, in all of our lives. Now, uh, some of you didn't need persuading. Some of you knew in advance that fear uh, was a major factor in your life. Uh, but others of us may need to do a little bit more thinking before we see that. But where do we go with all of this? You're beginning to think to yourself, this, this is going to feel more like a therapy weekend than a church weekend away. Where are we going? So time for a little bit more discussion, because uh, here's my next question, um, uh, which is to ask... Um, in one sense, uh, are the problems that Alex and Bill and the rest facing not a personal problem with fear, but a spiritual problem with the Lord? How and why, in other words, is fear a spiritual issue of the first order? Just have another little bit of a conversation with somebody near you uh, as you think that one through.
Okay, so, um, just to keep to time, I'm not going to, I won't take feedback from you. I hope those were useful, useful just sort of bits of discussion uh, together. Um, just in the time we've got left, let me, let me draw some threads together. We're, we're just kind of setting the scene in this first session, and I, and I want to, by and large, I just want to persuade you that fear is a much more prominent part of our lives um, and a much more significant issue. Um, for all of us uh, than we might initially have thought. Uh, so that's all I want to do in this first session in lots of ways. But let me draw some threads together um, and just begin to answer this question. How and why is fear a spiritual issue of the first order? Um, three things to say as we wrap up. Um, uh, here's the first. Our fears, uh, I want to suggest to you, are the inverse of our desires. Our fears are the inverse of our desires. See, one way of looking at Alex and Bill and all the rest um, one way of looking at them is, to, is through the lens of fear. That's what we've done so far. Uh, but likewise, you could, you could look at all of those individuals and look at them through the, through the lens of uh, desire, of the things that they really, really want. Um, here's how um, Ed Welsh puts it in um, his book about fear, Running Scared. Anytime you love or want something deeply, you will notice fear and anxieties because you might not get them. And any time you can't control the fate of those things you want or love, you'll notice fears and anxieties, because you might lose them. Do you get that? If you, if you really, really want something, um, then the fact that you might not be able to get hold of them will produce fear and anxiety. Suppose I can't get it. What if, what if, what if? Um, or if you've got something, but then you're terrified that it might get taken away from you. Fear and anxiety. This might disappear from me. I can't bear the idea of losing it. Um, so the things that we desire and the things that we fear uh, get woven very closely um, together in that way. Um, so, for example, you, you really want to be comfortable, be at ease, be peaceful. Then you can see how you'll be terrified of people making demands upon you, putting pressures upon you. Go away. Leave me alone. I just want to be at ease and at peace. I'm frightened of those demands. If, if you want people to love you, um, to admire you, um, then you will fear people's negative views of you. The idea of upsetting somebody, the idea of confronting somebody, having an argument with somebody will feel very alien to you because you're terrified of people not liking you. If you really want control, uh, you want things to be in order, then you will fear um, chaos. You'll, feel anything, you'll fear anything that is out of line with your most excellent plan. Or if you really want to be wealthy, if that's your desire, to have material wealth, then you will find being generous very difficult. Giving money away will bring you out in a cold sweat. What you desire and what you fear are like two sides of the same coin, do you see? Uh, second, because everyone has disordered desires, all of us also have disordered fears. In other words, this is a spiritual issue. Because if what we really, really wanted is Jesus and to please him, if that was our fundamental, complete desire, 
our greatest desire was to please Christ, then our fears would be driven away. Do you see that? Um, I think that's what John is on about in his first letter, um, where he says perfect love drives out fear. I, I think the perfect love here actually operates almost in two directions. Um, I think he, he both has in mind that the perfect love that Christ has for us, but also the perfect love that the, what we should therefore also have for Christ. If, if I really knew that Jesus loved me as perfectly as he does, then I think that would drive out fear. And I think it would drive out fear because I would have a perfect love for him and I would be consumed with concern for his glory. And, and all of the other things that I fear would, would begin to recede. But of course, we're not like that. We don't want Christ as perfectly as that. All sorts of other desires begin to squeeze in. All sorts of other things that we want from life above and beyond Jesus. And when that happens, fears come with them. So if, if we go back to our opening question, um, why should do not be afraid be the commonest command in the Bible? I think we're beginning to be ready to answer it. Because our fears reveal our allegiances. Our fears show us the things that are really most important to us. And we may not realize that. We may not realize that we have made control or comfort terribly, terribly important. But noticing the things that we're frightened of uh, can be a very effective way of beginning to notice things that we are desiring without even realizing it. So when God says, don't be afraid, he could equally well be saying, don't you go loving these other things in my place. Return to me instead. And that leads us to the third thing I want to say, which is that fear and faith are indeed intimately connected. Olaf um, was absolutely right. And, and his example uh, that he used from Mark chapter 4 is a very good example of it. Uh, you remember the incident, the, the disciples on the boat, traveling across the lake, storm comes up. Uh, these experienced fishermen terrified uh, that the boat is going to be swamped and they're going to drown. Uh, they wake Jesus. He stands, speaks to the waves, stills the storm. Extraordinary moment. And then perhaps even more extraordinary, he turns and says to the disciples, um, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And, and the implication of the question seems to be, if you had faith, then in the midst of this storm in which you think you're about to drown, you wouldn't be afraid. I mean, it, it is an extraordinary idea, isn't it? You know, no fear of drowning at all, because you have faith. I think it's just astounding that Jesus should suggest such a thing. But that does seem to be the direction of travel, that we're seeking to cultivate a faith that can settle the very deepest of our terrors. Now, you noticed as Brendan was reading, Ruth chapter 1 is full of terror. Uh, it begins with Elimelech's fear of famine. 
that leads to his decision to, to leave um, Bethlehem um, and head to Moab. Now, how do you read that decision? The, the commentators are divided. Uh, was it practical and prudent to head to Moab? Or did it demonstrate fear and faithlessness? Uh, and then how about all of that myriad of fears that are associated with bereavement and loss? They're all over chapter 1, aren't they? First, Naomi leaves is her husband, so that it's just her and her two boys left together. Now, how scary is that? All the responsibility now on her shoulders. Every decision, e even choosing wives for her two sons in this foreign land. But then the, the losses continue. Marlon and Kilion both die, leaving Naomi as a single woman in a foreign land with no means of support, afraid that the money will run out, afraid that the locals might turn against her, afraid that her life was ruined, afraid her family line was at an end, just afraid. And then how about the fear that Orpah and Ruth face to leave the land of their birth, to travel to this funny-sounding place called Bethlehem, the land of bread. What a funny name that is. Entering a new culture, speaking a new language, what kind of life would they have there in this foreign land? And all of that with Naomi, their mother-in-law, stuck in some bitter grief. Very scary deciding to throw your lot in with her. So brave or reckless? And how exactly do we know the difference concerning their decision? Now, fears abound in Ruth chapter 1. And in the face of that fear comes, comes that extraordinary declaration of faith uh, from Ruth in chapter 1, verse 16, where she says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. And, and you see, there it is again, faith in the face of fear. Terrifying to go, but this glorious, magnificent declaration of faith uh, that leads her to decide to accompany uh, Naomi back to Bethlehem. But you can see the cost in that decision of faith. Not easy to step out in faith in the way that she has chosen to do. In fact, is faith ever easy to confront our fears and overcome them in order to be obedient and faithful to God? Um, and that, in a sense, brings us to our aim for uh, the rest of the weekend, um, which I, I want to suggest to you is not so much to eradicate fear but to redirect it. I'm not trying to get rid of fear. I want to suggest to you that our ambition is to redirect our fear, to get our fear where it should be. See, I, we began by saying, why should do not fear be the commonest command in the Bible? Um, well, one question we need to ask is, how are we to read the command, do not fear? Is it a 
Is it a command or is it an encouragement? Um, let me explain what I mean. Um, you think about Luke chapter 12, uh, where Jesus says to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry. Now, do you think that's a command? I've heard it identified as a command. I remember years and years ago, um, I was at a talk with somebody who was uh, doing a series, um, series of talks from Luke chapter 12. And in his first talk, he said, um, he did something like this. Um, we won't do it together, just because um, I don't want to embarrass you. But, so he said, he said okay, f- um, put up your hand if you're a worrier. And loads of people put their hands up. I said, yeah, I'm a bit of a worrier. If you're a bit of a worrier, put your hand up. And then he said, now put up your hand if you're a thief. I think one person put their hand up, <laughs> if, I, if I remember rightly. And he said, funny thing that, isn't there? You know, we're all very happy to put our hand up and say, oh, I'm a warrior, a bit of a warrior, yes, that's me. Um, but we don't want to be thought of a thief. But just as much as the Bible says, do not steal, it also says, do not worry. So why are we happy to disobey one and not disobey the other? Now, what do you think? Was he right? I don't think he was right. I don't think they are the same. Um, I, I don't think do not worry and do not fear um, are the same as do not steal. There's something, something different about the two commands. And I think it goes something like this. Um, that we are intended to fear but the important thing is that we fear the right things. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Uh, Another inversion uh, describes that, my anxiety for all the churches. Uh, Or how about Galatians chapter 4? I fear for you but somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. You see, the Bible would tell us there are some things worth fearing. There are some anxieties that it is good to have. You're afraid of betraying your friends or your spouse? You're fearful of dishonoring Jesus? through the way that you speak or live? Are you afraid of causing one of these little ones to stumble? Do you fear for the health of the body of Christ at Christ Church? you worry uh, about how this weekend is going to go and whether you're going to get the most out of it? Do you fear that you're not using your gifts as well as God would want you to be? Do you worry that Christ is not as prominent in your life? That he hasn't got the place that he should have? Those are things worth worrying about, aren't they? Those are things that it would be good to fear. It wouldn't be a bad thing to fear those things. No, those would be fears that we ought to have. Fears that God would commend in us. Wouldn't be good to be calm or casual 
about any of those. So as we finish this um, first reflection, um, I, I'd love you just to spend a moment, perhaps quietly on your own, asking yourself, what are my fears? Do I know what they are? If, if I find it hard to see what I fear, who could help me to identify them? And, and am I clear how the kind of things that I tend to fear are connected with the kind of things that I most want out of life? Uh, let's just take a few moments um, just to reflect on that quietly on your own. Um, then I'll lead us um, in a prayer before I hand back to Brendan. So maybe quietly on your own. Uh, just to reflect on that question together.
Let me just uh, lead us in a, in a prayer before I hand back to Brenda. Uh, our Lord God, we, um, uh, we hear the way in which uh, in the Bible you press upon us uh, the, uh, the importance um, of fearing rightly. Um, and we perhaps uh, just begin to see uh, the way in which uh, our fears are indeed disordered. Um, and we pray, f uh, we pray, Lord God, that you would um, uh, show us um, uh, what it is that we are uh, prone uh, to fear and to dread, um, and the way in which those uh, fears uh, are tied in uh, with the things that we most desire. And we ask you to form in us such a, such a faith in Christ, um, such a, a love for his glory, uh, that we would increasingly fear uh, those things that you would have us fear. Um, and that we would increasingly long uh, for those things that you would have us uh, desire. Uh, in order that we might be uh, uh, spiritually uh, the people uh, that you would have us be. Uh, fearing and desiring the things that you would have us fear and desire. Uh, and we uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.